Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, let's start in Galatians chapter 3 tonight. We're going to read verses 13 and 14, which I hope you're familiar with. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Christ hath, past tense, hath, it's already been done, hath or has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us before it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. That or so that, here's the reason that he redeemed us from the curse of the law, so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Christ Jesus and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now look down with me to the last verse of the, uh, of the chapter, verse 29. Paul concludes and says, And if you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So many times we look at things in the, uh, in the Bible, and particularly things in the Old Testament, and the devil's always right there to say, Well, that just belongs to the Jews. But I want you to see that without a shadow of a doubt, the Holy Spirit is inspiring Paul to tell you that the blessing of Abraham is yours. It's been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Now, I want you to realize that that purchase came through the association and the work involved with the cross. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us because it's written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. In other words, your redemption, based on the work of Jesus, resulted in the blessing of Abraham being yours. Now, turn back with me to Genesis chapter 12. Let's see what the blessing of Abraham was. Or at least one aspect of it we're going to talk about tonight. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country. This is the first time God appears to Abram, has anything to do with him, hadn't even changed his name yet. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee. First thing he talks to Abraham about is the blessing. I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curses thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now Proverbs 10.22 says, The blessing of the Lord maketh rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. Now here, God, the first time that uh, God appears to Abraham, first, uh, um, well, they don't even really have a covenant yet. God's just offering him, a pro- making a proposition to him. If you'll obey me and go where I tell you to go, then this is the result. I'll bless you, I'll make your name great, and make you a blessing. The blessing of the Lord maketh rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. Well, I wonder if that took place in Abraham's life. Turn with me to chapter 13. And Abram went up out of Egypt, verse 1, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich. Abram was very rich. Everybody say very rich. Now God said, obey me, go where I tell you to go and I'll make you and I'll bless you and make you a blessing. Proverbs 10.22 again says the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. And Abram was very rich. Now, I know that God, in his wisdom, knew exactly how the devil was going to try to use people and influence people and try to steal the truth of the word from them. And one of the ways that he does that and uses people and religion, denominations and so forth to to do this, is they try to spiritualize everything. Oh, yeah, the blessing of the Lord makes rich. But there's a lot of ways that you can be rich outside of money. I'm not going to argue that, folks. I agree with that completely. But why does that mean that it doesn't include money? Why do we have to accept, which so much of the modern, modern day church has done, why is it that we're supposed to accept that spiritual riches don't have any benefit in the physical realm? Why is it that spiritual riches don't transfer to what the Old Testament types and shadows refer to us as God's intent, will, and purpose for his people in Israel? He cared about their finances. This says, and Abram was very rich in silver and cattle and gold. Those are material possessions, are they not? Well, then if God's going to make good on his word, the blessing of the Lord maketh rich, and he adds no sorrow to it, then the example that we see from Abram's life has to include financial provision. Now, if we took the time to look a little further, the next chapter in chapter 14, it tells us about how Abram 
went out against the five kings that had uh, taken Lot and his family and uh, captive when they overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, he raided their camps, defeated them, and brought back all the people and all the goods. And you remember that the king of Sodom said to him, this is when Melchizedek came out to meet Abram, coming back from the victory. And the king of Sodom said, take the stuff and give me back the people. And Abram wouldn't have have anything to do with it. He said, I don't want even a shoestring from you because I don't want anybody to say that you made me rich. If we skipped a little further over into Genesis chapter 24, we'd see when Abraham sent uh, his servant out to find a wife for Isaac. He finds Rebekah. And when he finally winds up at Rebekah's father's house, telling about why he was there and, and who he serves and so forth, he said, and I think this is Genesis 24, verse 35, if I remember correctly. He said, and the Lord has blessed my master greatly with flocks and herds and silver and gold. So I want you to understand something, folks. The Bible speaks very specifically about as far as Abraham was concerned, as far as his household was concerned, as far as anybody connected with him was concerned, the reason he was very rich was one for one and only one reason, and that is because God's blessing was upon him. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. Now turn with me over to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28. Fast forward to where the children of Israel have been delivered from Egypt. They came to the edge of the promised land and refused to go in because of their unbelief. Spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is Moses' farewell address. Well, really most of the book of Deuteronomy is his farewell address. But it's one of the last things that Moses had to do with and had to say to the children of Israel. And he's encouraging them, knowing that he's going off the scene, knowing that his time is done. Joshua will be taking over leadership in his place. And he says to them, beginning in verse 1, And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all of his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. Now he's going to specify what the blessing of Abraham is. I want you to realize, folks, God just appeared to Abraham and said, If you'll obey me, I'll bless you. And the end result was Abram became very rich in silver and cattle and gold. God didn't say, I'll bless you here and I'll bless you there and I'll bless you in this way and I'll bless you in that way, but I won't bless you over here and I won't bless you in that. He just said, I'll bless you. And the end result was Abraham became very rich in silver and cattle and gold. Now Moses is going to specify and break down the blessing of the Lord for the children of Israel so they have no way to misinterpret what he's saying. The same should be true for us. And all these blessings, verse 2, all these blessings, everybody say all. All these blessings shall come upon thee, not one of the bunch. Take your pick which one you'd like. All these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your kind. And the flocks of thy sheep, blessed shall be your basket and your store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. In other words, the blessing of God is going to be on you no matter what you do, no matter what your means of employment is, no matter what your area of work or area of expertise is, city, field, going in, coming out, basket or store. Whatever you do, you can expect the blessing of God to bring results upon you. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses. Do you know what a storehouse is? That's where you put extra stuff. If you're living hand to mouth, if you're living day to day, you don't have a storehouse because you don't have anything extra. So the fact that God said that he'll command the blessing upon your storehouses has to indicate that he wants you to have more than enough. Doesn't it? The Lord shall command upon thee the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses, and in all, A-double-L, all that thou settest thine hand unto, 
and he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Now, if the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he has no sorrow to it, then let's substitute the word rich for blessing because that's what the blessing of the Lord brings. And the Lord shall command riches upon thee in thy storehouses and in all that thou settest thine hand unto, and he shall make you rich in the land which the Lord thy God gives you. That would have to be an accurate translation if the word's true. The Lord shall establish you a holy people unto himself, as he has sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord by thy God and walk in his ways. Notice it's conditional, conditioned upon obedience to the word. And all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods. Plenteous means more than enough. The Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods, in the fruit of your body, in the fruit of your cattle, in the fruit of your ground, in the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers to give thee. The Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven, to give the rain unto thy land in his season, and to bless all the work of thine hand, and thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. He's saying God will even cause the weather and nature to work on your behalf. So much so that you'll have enough to lend to others and you won't have to borrow from others to make it. I know a lot of people get hung up on borrowing. But folks, I want you to understand if borrowing is wrong, then lending would be wrong too. If borrowing is a sin, then you'd be contributing to somebody's sin to lend to them. And that can't be the case because God said you'd be able to lend. And the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail. And thou shalt be above only. And thou shalt not be beneath. If that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day to observe and to do them. And thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I command thee this day to the right hand or to the left to go after one other gods to serve them. That's what Moses is inspired by the Holy Ghost to identify the blessing of Abraham to be. And notice he said, and all these blessings shall come on you through obedience of the word. All these blessings shall come upon you. Not just one per each person. All these blessings shall come upon you. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree, that or so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. How can we say that these blessings only belong to the Jews? They do not. They used to belong to the Jews. They used to only belong to the Jews. But since Jesus, they belong to everybody that's part of the family of God. Now, turn back with me. Oh, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I don't want you to leave here. Let me point something out. There's a lot that we could read in this chapter. But let's thumb down a few verses to uh, verse 38. Let me read verses 38 through 40. These have to do with financial provision and so forth. Notice what you're redeemed from. Here's the curse of the law. Here's the curse that if you don't hearken to the Lord and his commandments, all these things will come on you and so forth. Here's what you're redeemed from. Thou shalt carry much seed out into the field and shalt gather but little in, for the locust shall consume it. Thou shalt plant vineyards and dress them, but neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. Thou shalt have olive trees throughout all thy coast, but thou shalt not anoint thyself with oil, for thine olive shall cast his fruit. I want you to realize what you're redeemed from. You're redeemed from doing a lot of work for little benefit. Hello. How many Christians do you know that struggle with finances? Struggle to make it. Struggle on their job. Working hard for little benefit. Little results. The Bible says that's one of the things you're redeemed from. Now somebody needs to get a hold of that. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Here's more of what Moses has been telling the people about the promised land, the land that God's leading them to. Let's start reading in verse 12. 
He says, wherefore, it shall come to pass, if you hearken to these judgments, remember it's all conditional, conditioned on obedience to the word. Let me say this. Let me go ahead and interject this at this point. The Old Testament was about works. It was about obedience because God's keeping score. The New Testament is not about works. The New Covenant is about the grace of the finished work of Jesus that has provided certain things for us. But that doesn't mean that obedience is not required of us. But obedience under the New Covenant is faith. Obedience in the church age means you believe what God has said and so you act as if it's true. And that's the, the biblical definition of faith. So to hearken under the commandments of the Lord is simply to believe and act on the word of God today because we believe in our hearts and say it with our mouth. Do you understand that? It's not that God's keeping score. It's that Jesus has made a way for us it's a means of us using God's method to receive what he's already provided. Again, verse 12. Wherefore, it shall come to pass, if you hearken to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy which he swear unto thy fathers. Notice even Moses is talking about this being the blessing of Abraham. The covenant that God swore first unto Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob. And he will love thee and bless thee and multiply thee. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, thy corn and thy wine and thine oil, the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep in the land which he swear unto thy fathers to give thee. Thou shalt be blessed above all people. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your cattle. That's talking about a fruitful result in your business. I don't raise cattle, so I don't need to be fruitful in cattle in that sense but that would signify and stand for whatever business you or I are in and the Lord will take away from thee all sickness and will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt which thou knowest upon thee but will lay them upon all them that hate thee and thou shalt consume all the people which the Lord thy God shall deliver thee thine eyes shall have no pity upon them neither shalt thou serve their gods for that will be a snare unto thee if thou shalt say in thine heart, these nations are more than I, how can I dispossess them? Thou shalt not be afraid of them, but shall well remember what the Lord thy God did unto Pharaoh and all of Egypt. In other words, he's saying, quit worrying about things looking too big for you. Quit looking at the reasons that the devil tries to throw up in front of you for why you can't prosper and why you can't succeed. God saying it never was about how strong you were to begin with. It's about who I am and it's about my promise. The great temptations which thine eyes saw and the signs and the wonders and the mighty hand and the stretched out arm whereby the Lord thy God brought thee out. So shall the Lord thy God do unto all the people of whom thou art afraid. In other words, he says, I've already defeated bigger enemies than you to begin with. It's no problem for me to do it again. Moreover, the Lord thy God will send a hornet among them until, them that are, until they that are left and, and hide themselves from thee be destroyed. Thou shalt not be affrighted at all the, at them, for the Lord thy God among you is a mighty God and terrible. And then he goes on to talk about putting out the nations in front of them. Look with me to chapter 8. All the commandments which I command thee this day shall you observe to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. Again, it goes back to the blessing of Abraham. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through, through faith. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in your heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or not. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. Now let's talk about this for a minute, because as soon as you say the word humble, all of a sudden religious doctrine and religious teaching is crops up in, in so many people in the body of Christ. 
And the idea that the church has promoted for so long is that God humbles you, brings you down low, brings you down to nothing, deprives you, so that you learn some great spiritual lesson that's supposed to benefit you in the long run. But hold your finger here. We're going to come back to it. Turn with me over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Let's start in verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice the opening line here. He's saying, think like Jesus thought. Your choice. Not going to happen unless you choose to and determine to. But here's the way that you should think as inspired by, as Paul was inspired by the Holy Ghost to tell us. Let's say it this way. Here's the Holy Ghost saying, think like this. Are we in agreement? There's no other explanation for what this verse could mean. Think like this, saith the Holy Ghost. Well, what are we supposed to think? Verse 6, who being in the form of God, meaning part of the Godhead, creator of the universe, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. It means simply this. Jesus was willing because of God's plan of redemption for mankind. Jesus was willing to leave his place of glory as co-equal with God the Father and come to the earth. He was willing to do so. He didn't have to do it. God didn't make him. It wasn't like God said, do this or else, Jesus. Because Jesus is equal with God the Father. But he was willing to put aside his heavenly power and glory, make himself of no reputation, strip himself of all of his heavenly power and glory, and come to the earth in fashion as a man. Verse, uh, verse 8, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, if the Bible says, here's what we're supposed to think, and it tells us about Jesus humbling himself, then God's talking that whatever the Bible says about humbling us or us being humbled should be in line with what the Holy Ghost has already told us to think like Jesus. Right? What did Jesus do to humble himself to become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross? Show me any way whatsoever that Jesus was not victorious. He was victorious over sickness. He was victorious over disease. The only time he went hungry is when he chose to. He had a treasurer, which means there had to be money in the bag. So much so that Judas was stealing from him, from the bag, and nobody else knew. But if you got two nickels in a bag and you take one, somebody's going to know. So there had to be enough money in the bag for nobody to notice. There had to be enough for Judas to take some and still be there for Jesus to go direct him to give to the poor as he did so often. The Bible says that at the Last Supper when Judas left, the rest of them assumed that Jesus told him to go give something to the poor. Well, folks, when you leave the room, I don't assume you're going to give to the poor. But if you make that such a habit in your life that every time you leave, somebody thinks, well, there he goes again. Then we'd understand. And that's what the Bible says about Judas. So how did Jesus humble himself? He submitted himself to the plan and the purpose of God to walk according to God's will. Everything Jesus said that he did was according to God's will. He came not to do his own will, but do the will of the Father. He submitted himself to God's plan and God's purpose. He was the word made flesh. Every word that he said was words that were given to him of the Father by the Holy Ghost. So when Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, he simply submitted himself unto God. He didn't submit himself to some failure. He didn't submit himself to some area of defeat, any area of defeat. He walked fearlessly before the power of the devil and took authority over him in every case. And the Bible says, think like that. 
Now, the church teaches that God will humble you, but the Bible never says that that's the case. Turn with me over to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, let's start reading in verse 6. But he, speaking of God, gives more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. Keep that in mind. Keep that word grace in mind. Submit yourselves therefore, because God gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Please notice that submitting yourselves to God is not becoming some worm that gets trampled on in the earth. Submitting yourself to God means submitting yourself to the word. Choosing to accept the word of God to be true no matter what. No matter how you feel. No matter what the devil speaks to your mind. To accept yourself to be who the Bible says you are in spite of who the devil says you are. That's what submitting yourself unto God means. And that's a key. The first step to resisting the devil. Just like Jesus did here on the earth. Again, notice the theme, think like Jesus and therefore act like he did. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh unto God and he'll draw nigh unto you. Notice it's your move. God's ready when you are. Draw nigh unto God and he'll draw nigh unto you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, he's saying for those people that are reading this letter, if they're involved in sin, stop it. To those that are being double-minded, become single-minded according to the word. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Now, folks, this is the theme that the New Testament speaks to over and over again. You humble yourself. What does that mean? That means be willing to submit to God's plan and purpose. Be willing to submit yourself to the word, to resist the devil and walk in victory. Not because of who you are, but because of what Jesus has done. You humble yourself like that and God will lift you up. So what's the purpose of humbling ourselves? To become obedient to the word so God can lift us up. To become obedient to the word so that we can walk in victory. That's why God wants you to humble yourself. He didn't want you to humble yourself to think less of yourself concerning who you think you are. He wants you to think more of yourself, but according to what the Bible says. He wants you to think according to what the Bible says you are instead of what the devil might try to push you to think. You know, the devil plays both sides of the street. He'll either try to push you into pride to make you think you're hot stuff. Or he'll accuse you continually to make you think you're nothing. Well, what's the truth? The truth is you are who you have been made to be in Christ Jesus. No matter how you feel, no matter how it looks, that's who you are. And when we get to heaven, those that have passed up on opportunities to walk in victory here on the earth are going to simply be asked a question, why didn't you believe the word? Jesus said, I didn't come to judge you. The word that I speak judges. That's the only, that's the only question that, is, that a believer is going to be asked when they get to heaven. Did you keep my word? That's it. That's what we're going to be judged by. That's what we're going to be rewarded by. That's whether That will be the determining factor of whether what we did here on the earth lasts or burns up. Did you keep my word? Look with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Verse 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion doesn't say he is one, says he sounds like one. As a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. 
In other words, he's saying the same thing James said. He's saying the same thing Paul said writing to the Philippians about Jesus. He's saying, humble yourselves to the plan and the purpose of God. How do we know the plan and the purpose of God? It's written in the word. And if we'll submit ourselves to who God says we are, to what God says we should do, should or can do, then that will bring us to a place, if we walk by faith, to overcome the devil, resist him, and overcome him and be victorious. Same principle applies. You humble yourself, God will exalt you into victory. Why? Because the key is the word. The key is not even your attitude. The key is to be willing to accept the word as truth because God said it. Because the word is the power of God to deliver. The word's the key to victory. So all we have to do is choose to set aside our thinking, taking captive every thought and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and his word. Choose to accept the word. Think like the word says. Think about ourselves. Think about God. Think about other people the way that the word says it is. Walk like it's true. Live our lives in this life like it's true. And experience victory. Now back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. The reality, folks, is that what the modern day church calls humility, thinking that you're a worm, thinking that you're nothing, is to call the word of God a lie. What the modern day church calls pride and arrogance is simply choosing to accept the word of God to be true because Jesus has accomplished everything that the Bible says that he did. To accept I am who I am in Christ, not because I think I'm hot stuff. But the modern day church will criticize you if you take that position. You resist the devil by faith. You use your words and exercise your authority against him. And the modern day church will say, how dare you? How dare you call things that be not as though they are? How dare you speak contrary to what you can see and feel? God's definition is exactly the opposite of the modern day church. Traditional church doctrine. What the modern day church calls pride God calls humbling yourself. What the modern day church calls humility, the Bible calls pride. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let me read these again. All these commandments which I command thee this day shall you observe to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep the commandments or not. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. Now let me ask you a question. What did God do to humble these people? Well, it says he humbled them to suffer hunger. When did they ever go hungry? Wasn't that what manna was all about? To feed them? Now, where was the humility? Where was the lesson? Remember, it says that these things happened so that he would determine what was really in their heart. Whether they were serving him because he was showering good things upon them. Or whether it was really in their heart to serve him and keep his word. You remember that was the accusation that Satan made against God concerning Job. God said, have you considered my servant Job? There's nobody like him in the earth. Satan said, yeah, well, that's because you've been good to him. You put a hedge around him. You blessed him with everything. If those things go away, what will he do then? See, a lot of people are willing to believe God when things are good and times are good. Things are easy and times are good. What are you going to do when things aren't so easy? Now, remember who these people are. 
God brought them out of Egypt with silver and gold, and there was not one people among them. But now they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. What is all that silver and gold good for? The people had an opportunity to give to the furnishings of the tabernacle of the wilderness, but Moses finally had to tell the people, stop giving, we've got more than enough. I'm looking forward to that day. We can stand up and say, folks, we would take an offering, but we've gotten too much. We're not going to receive one. We've got to stop. Wouldn't that be great? People will still criticize you. they say, well, that's just some scheme. But the silver and gold that they came out of Egypt with isn't doing them any good unless they're using it to barter back and forth between, you know, selling goats to each other and stuff like that over these 40 years. So what is that taught them? That's taught them that possessions is not everything. They've learned that they've got plenty of stuff that they're dragging from place to place, camp to camp. But there's nowhere to use it. There's nowhere to spend it. Even though God wanted them to have it and there is a plan for it down the road, it's of no benefit to them at the moment. What is their immediate need? Food, water. Who was the provider of their food and their water? God was. But God gave them manna and the, the, the program, the way that manna worked, is that they only got enough that they could use for the day. Anything more, if they tried to store up more than they needed for one day, it would go bad, spoil. And the only exception to that was that they would be able to gather two days' worth before the Sabbath. But God never made them go hungry. Never. It wasn't a matter of anybody doing without. It was a matter of them finding out that God provides your needs day by day. They didn't know if they gathered manna for the, for the one day. They didn't know it was going to be there the next day. They had to trust God. They had no way to, to be sure that it was going to be there. But it happened so much and so often and so frequently every day, except the Sabbath, that they found that God was faithful. But what was the lesson to be learned? Trust God daily. Even though I've got a bunch of stuff, even though I've got silver and gold tucked away in the tent, trust God daily for what you need now. Now, folks, that's a lesson everybody needs to learn. So many times people are chasing God for the blessings themselves instead of God for who he is. But what happens when, the, the, when lean times come? Because they always come to us. Everybody runs into problems where there's less than it looks like you need. What are you going to do then? If you haven't found God faithful in the beginning stages, you're not going to have anybody to trust in when times get lean, when money comes up short. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in your heart, whether thou would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger. That doesn't mean they went hungry. It means he was the source of their daily provision. They weren't able to build barns and put grain in. He humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. In other words, you learned that I was faithful to keep my promise. Thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. The word chasten means to discipline. Now, what do we do to discipline our kids as they grow up? Well, we try to teach them that stuff isn't everything. We try to teach them that there are times where you need to go without stuff just for the simple fact to experience what it's like not to have everything you want. It's good to be without sometimes. It builds character. It shows you what's really important in life. I think one of the greatest lessons Israel learned is that the silver and gold that they came out of Egypt with doesn't do them any good in the wilderness. 
That's instant proof that there are a lot of things that are more important than money. So the chastening here is not punishment. It's training. It's discipline. Just like we train our kids. Doesn't mean to beat. Doesn't mean to punish. Doesn't mean to hurt. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways and to fear him. In other words, you should have learned by what you experienced with the manna. That just as I am faithful to keep my word about providing manna for you every day. And for 40 years I never failed. So also am I faithful to keep my word in everything that I say. I'm just as faithful, just as trustworthy about every word that I speak. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land. A land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills. Please notice the principle or the progression that the Bible tells us that the Old Testament is a type of. Learn the things that are important. What's important in life? Is money number one on the list? No. God's word is number one on the list. Learn that God's word is the most important thing, that man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, not by bread that you can buy at the store or make for yourself, but by the word of God. That was the source. That was their store for 40 years. The word of God was their store. Because God wants to bring you into a good land. And if we will learn the discipline of keeping the word and putting the word first place and walking in his word, no matter what it looks like and no matter what we feel. To renew our mind to the truth of the word that it cannot fail. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word cannot fail. will never fail. This is God's ultimate plan. He's going to bring you into a good land. A land that flows with milk and honey. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. It won't be like manna. It won't be day to day. But don't forget that God was faithful day to day. A land where you can eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it. That means abundance in every respect. Now, if God wanted that for Israel and he doesn't want it for the church, then he's better to them than he is to us. Now, again, the modern-day church, here's the religious tradition that will pop up. Yeah, but we've got better things. Spiritually, we've got better things. Folks, they have the opportunity to have the same new birth as you do. We live in a day when Jesus has already come. They lived in a day where Jesus was promised to come. But everyone that kept God's commandments were waiting in Abraham's bosom, also called paradise, when Jesus was raised from the dead and were taken by him, Jesus, to the throne of God with him. You're no more a part of the family of God than they are. You're a member of the family of God by choice. They had opportunity to be part of God's family by choice as well. They had to wait for Jesus' sacrifice to be made. Where in the day that we live, Jesus' sacrifice has already been made. But that is the only difference. It's just timing. You're not any more saved than they are. They just got saved when Jesus appeared in the Abraham's bosom and said, I'm here. Who wants to go with me? I'm pretty sure nobody said no. But God's plan was for them to be his children just as much as it is for you to be his children. God doesn't play favorites with children. A land wherein thou may eat bread without scarceness and thou shalt not lack anything in it. God does not want you to lack anything in your life. And the key is to keep the word. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full. The implication is there is a point where you should be full. It's not a sin to be full. It might be a little bit of a sin to go past full. But God seems to be okay with being full. 
When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee. Remember that it was him. He doesn't have a problem with you having stuff. He has a problem with stuff having you. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God and not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses, that must be okay with God and dwelt therein. God must be okay with good houses. He didn't say when you build a shack, anything more than a shack is sin. When thou hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy, thy herds and thy flocks multiply, that must be okay with him too. It's not only okay with him, it's the blessing of Abraham. It's what belongs to him. And when your flocks and your herds multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied, that's Abraham's blessing too. And all that you have is multiplied... Then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord thy God which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought wherein there was no water. Who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint. Who fed thee in the wilderness with manna which thy fathers knew not. That he might humble thee that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. Please notice verse 16. Who fed thee in the wilderness daily bread. With manna, which thy fathers knew not. It was something new that had never been made before. God did something special. He did a creative miracle every day for 40 years, except the Sabbath day. For this purpose, that he might humble thee. We've talked about what that means, that you might learn his faithfulness to his word. That he might prove thee. To do thee good at thy latter end. So that you would have the strength of character for him to bless you in the abundance that he wants you to have. What else could that mean? God wants you to be abundantly supplied, but he wants you to have the strength of character so that that supply doesn't lead you astray. Are you out there? I don't know if I'm doing you any good, but I'm preaching me happy. And thou say in thine heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. See, folks, if God doesn't allow you to have a proving time, then the prosperity you may well well be believing him for could destroy you. But if you develop that strength of character so that you know that it's God's word that's the source of your blessing and God's faithfulness to his word that brings everything that you have, then you never are tempted to think I'm big stuff. Look at what I've done. Abraham all through his life after being very rich in silver and cattle and gold and multiplying decade after decade after decade said at the end of his life everything I have is God's. It's from him and it's available to him. And that's the place that God wants every one of his children to be. And if we'll develop that strength of character, we can walk in all the good that he wants to bring to us. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, verse 18. For it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. What is the power to get wealth? The power to get wealth, folks, is very simply this. It is to recognize and understand God's faithfulness to keep his word and therefore to live like his word's true. That's the power to get wealth. That's the whole thing that he's been trying to teach them. And Moses tells them, here's what God's purpose was. He wanted you to find that he was faithful and that he would provide for you. Even when there was no water, he brought it forth out of the rock. Even when there was no grain to to harvest, to bake bread, He made manna, turned the dew into food. I don't know if you know that, but dew is not food. As I said, he did a creative miracle every day for 40 years for the children of Israel. That was supposed to teach them one one main lesson, and that is God is trustworthy. No matter what it looks like, no matter if you don't see any provision for tomorrow, 
No matter if you don't see any way that water can be provided or whatever you need to be provided, God is faithful to do it. P.C. Nelson was talking to a a group of ministers one time, and one of the young guys asked him, he said, how many uh, languages do you know? And he said, not any yet. And then somebody clarified and said, well, how many do you speak and write? And he said, 32. And so he was telling them something about the Greek language. He said, when Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. He said, the translators used the strongest assertion that they could and to, to say, I shall or I would, or I shall or I will, in the, King James, in the uh, English language, is the strongest assertion you can make. But he said, the Greek means more than that. He said, when Jesus said, whatever you ask for in my name, I will do it, it literally means this. It means if I don't have it, I'll make it. That's how faithful God is. If you need something he doesn't have, then he'll make it. Now, I don't know how that's possible. But that's what the language indicates that Jesus was conveying to his disciples. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant. Abraham's blessing. God gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3. I'm out of time. You want me to go a little bit further or stop? Okay. Verse 1. My son, forget not my law. Remember all the blessings of Abraham were contingent upon obedience to to the word. My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. The word peace is the word shalom. It means well-being in every area. It's the word that's translated prosperity in Psalm 35, verse 27. Let them say, let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Well, that has to be true. That has to be an accurate translation because God had pleasure in prospering Abram. God took pleasure in prospering Israel in the promised land. He even promised Israel, he prospered Israel. When they came out of Egypt by bringing them forth with silver and gold. So that has to be an accurate translation. Now, the word shalom means well-being in every area, which means this. It means it's not limited to finances, but it has to include them from the examples we see in Scripture. Let me point something out to you. In verse uh, 16, talking about wisdom which comes from keeping the word, it says length of days is in her right hand and in her left hand riches and honor. Now compare that with what we just read in verse 2. For length of days and long life and peace or riches shall they add to thee. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee, bind them about thy neck, write them upon the table of thine heart. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Walk by faith. And lean not to your own understanding. Your mind won't agree with the word always. Choose the word. Stick with the word. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. In other words, humble yourself to the word of God. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of all your increase. So shall your barns be filled with plenty and their presses shall burst out with new wine. My son despise not the chastening of the Lord. Here's that word discipline. It takes discipline to humble yourself to the word. There are times when doing the word will make your flesh scream. There are times when doing the word will cause your mind to go squirrely on you. It'll be everything you can do to just to hold still. Stay steady. That's the chastening or the disciplining of the Lord. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, God chastens and disciplines one and only one way, and that's through his word. Not through circumstance, not through trouble, not through affliction, not through sickness and disease. The word of God is profitable for discipline or chastening. It's the word that he chastens you with. 
So it says, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. The word will correct the way you live. Don't shy away from that. Don't get down on yourself. Just make the adjustments. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, and even as the father of the son in whom he delights. Look with me to Proverbs chapter 22. Verse 4. By humility and the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is keeping his word. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Let me show you another place where this word peace, this word shalom is used. It's over in Isaiah chapter 53. Remember where we started. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. In other words, the curse that he was made for us was when he went to the cross. He did that so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. Verse 5 of Isaiah 53. But he was wounded. The work of the cross. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, shalom, was upon him. And with his stripes were healed. It would be just as scriptural. I think it would be limiting. But it would be just as scriptural to translate this word peace, the word prosperity. The chastisement of our prosperity was upon him. I'm glad it's not translated that way. Because it might give people the idea that that's all that peace involves. It's just financial well-being and riches and so forth. There's a lot more to peace than just money and material things. But again, we have to understand that the Bible includes material well-being in this Hebrew word, shalom. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. I want you to understand what that means, folks. That means Jesus paid a price on the cross, the shedding of his blood, for your well-being in every area, including financial. Now, we know why Jesus did this. We know that he did this for, because of the, his desire to show God's grace unto mankind. For by grace are you saved through faith. It was God's grace that put him on the cross. It was God's grace, his willingness to show favors unto people and to mankind, that put Jesus in the position to keep the commandments of God, God's plan and purpose for redemption. But he paid a price. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Well, let's start in chapter 9, I guess. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Paul is writing to the church and says, For you know that the grace of for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. Now tell me this, when was Jesus impoverished? Let me ask you this way, when was Jesus without a treasurer? Bible scholars agree that not only the 12, but also the 70 followed Jesus around with other people as well. There were probably a group of 100 to maybe 120 people or so that followed Jesus anywhere and everywhere that he went. And he was responsible for the care and the well-being of those people. When he came and appointed 70, he didn't have to go looking for people. They were already there. So when was Jesus ever impoverished here on the earth? When they were without food for the 5,000, he multiplied loaves and fishes. When the 7,000 were without food, he multiplied loaves and fishes again. When they needed more wine at the wedding feast of Cana, he turned the water into wine. When Peter got himself into a tax problem, he sent him to go fishing to find the fish with the coin in his mouth to pay taxes for. When was he ever without? Some people will say they'll spiritualize this and say, well, Jesus became spiritually poor. Folks, I would submit something to you. The spiritually poor did not raise the dead. How was Jesus impoverished? Well, Jesus said the foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Yes, he did say that, but he wasn't talking about didn't have a place to live. Jesus was responsible for the care of his mother while he was here on the earth as her firstborn. 
if he did not adequately take care of his mother and his family members, whichever ones were still at home, then he would be a lawbreaker, a sinner, according to the law of Moses. In fact, the text says that it was his house that he was preaching where the four men took the tiling off the roof and let the, guy, the crippled guy down in the middle. When Jesus said the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, he's saying, when I live home, I'm trusting in God's provision just like you'll have to. I don't know where I'm going to wind up. I don't know what I'm going to have available. He's not saying he doesn't have a home. Jesus was not some homeless guy that lived under a bridge. If he had been, then the the soldiers wouldn't have thrown dice and gambled for his clothes. I don't know many people that want homeless people's clothes. Do you? So when was Jesus impoverished? Well, Isaiah 53 says it was when he was on the cross. He suffered a punishment for our prosperity. Just like he was made sick, according to Isaiah 53.10, just like he was made sin, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus was made poverty, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace, the finished work of Jesus, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor on the cross that you through his poverty might be rich. Now look with me over to chapter 9. We'll close with this. Paul is talking about giving. Start in verse 6. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. By the way, I probably should point this out. The previous chapter, chapter 8 Paul is talking about the context. He's talking about Jesus being made poor that you might be made rich. He's talking about, now I know what your plans were to give to the churches that didn't have enough. I know that you were in a position where you couldn't follow through on your promise to give to them. But now things have changed and I encourage you to give and finish, fulfill the pledge that you made. He's talking about giving. He's talking about material things. He's talking about offerings. And he says to them, in his encouragement for them to fulfill the pledge, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor for your sakes, that you through his poverty might be made rich. In other words, he's saying, do what you promised to do for the other church, the other Christians. God will make it good. He'll bless you. Verse 6, again, Second Corinthians chapter 9. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is, all, all, God is able to make all grace abound towards you. Please notice that this, he's talking about grace. God gives grace to the humble. Notice what Paul defines part of grace as being. The finished work of Jesus includes this. God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may abound unto every good work. In other words, he's saying God is able as a part of the work of Jesus being made a curse for us on the cross. The chastisement of our peace means that he paid a price so that, again, if we humble ourselves to the word, become obedient to the word and walk in his statutes, Walk by faith, in other words. Develop the strength of character to know God's faithfulness. God is able to make you abound in all things so that you're never without the ability to give. That means you've got more than enough. Now, I know this isn't popular in a lot of circles. And if the Bible didn't say it so specifically, I wouldn't preach it. But you've got to change what the word says to come up with any other conclusion. Then the Bible indicates that Jesus was made three things for you on the cross. He was made sin. He was made sickness. And he was made poverty. So that you, by him being made sin, were made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You're not going to be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus someday. You are now if you're part of the family of God. 
He was made sick. And by his stripes you were healed. You're not going to be healed someday. That's already been accomplished through the finished work of Jesus. He was made poor. That through his poverty you might be made rich. Now get this folks. This is where your mind will try to go squirrely on you. You're not going to be rich someday. You're rich now. Because of the finished work of Jesus. In other words. Let me put it in these terms. The blessing of God is upon you because of the work that Jesus did and the blessing of the Lord makes rich. What should we do? Well, we don't wait till we feel righteous to say that we're righteous, do we? We don't wait till we see ourselves well before we say that we're well, do we? Not if we want to be well. Then when do we start saying we're rich? When it doesn't look like we are. Whatever your situation is now. Start calling yourself rich. By the grace of God. Start confessing. That I am rich because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Start confessing that the blessing of Abraham is yours. And watch and see what God does. Amen. Well thank you for the extra time. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you. We thank you so much for your provision. We thank you for your goodness. Lord, let these words sink down under our hearts and let us be doers thereof. For we know the doers are blessed in their deeds. We therefore declare that we were made rich by the poverty of Jesus. The sacrifice that he made for us on the cross has brought the blessing of Abraham unto us. God, we know you don't play favorites. Abraham was very rich in silver and cattle and gold, so we thank you for making us very rich in silver and cattle and gold. Thank you, Lord, for proving us those times where we learned you to be faithful, found you to be faithful to your word. Those were precious times. Lord, we thank you that we've entered into the land of plenty, the land that flows with milk and honey, the land of more than enough. We bless you, Lord. We thank you that it's true. In Jesus' name, everybody that agrees with that, say amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.